God, only by grace can we even receive the teaching of Jesus. And so I pray that you would pour out your grace today, liberally, generously, that you would just fill our hearts with uh, not a sense of burden over what Christ teaches us, but a sense of joy. Because in teaching these things, Jesus is giving to us a way of life that is possible through the spirit that empowers us. And so I pray that we would receive this teaching with joyful hearts, that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus, and that we would come to understand this parable and in the weeks that follow the other parables we look at more deeply, and that through it we might be more faithful to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And so, Lord, continue the work that you are doing in each of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, if you're in Matthew chapter 18, we're going to pick up in verse 21, um, but I want to give you a bit of the backdrop here before I read some of the verses, okay? Uh, The stage has already been set in this chapter for the parable that we're going to read. In verses 15 through 20 in Matthew, we find a teaching that Jesus gives to his followers about how to deal with sin in the church. And Jesus really gives us a straightforward process. It's not complicated. If someone sins against you in church, then you should go to them and you should tell them. And you should talk it out. That's it. If someone sins against you in church, you should go to them and you should work it out. You shouldn't uh, first and foremost come to the elders and tell us. You shouldn't complain about it. To other people, you shouldn't post about it on social media. You shouldn't gather your friends and gossip about it. You shouldn't pretend like it didn't happen, which is what we sometimes do. We kind of sweep it under the rug, pretend like, oh, it's not that big a deal. No, you should simply go to your brother, Jesus says, tell him that he sinned against you and address that issue. And you should expect that when you go to your brother, the Spirit of God will lead him to repent. And there will be reconciliation because this is what God wants for the family of Christ. That we would be unified and reconciled to one another. And if they sinned against you and they repent, then you should forgive them. And in forgiving them, seek to move on past that hurt. You shouldn't let their sin fester. You shouldn't let it lead you to bitterness You shouldn't continue to be upset about it forever or let it define you. And I would say that to forgive means that you no longer allow that sin to uh, be something that you hold against them. It's not a debt that you continue to keep on record. You actually move towards behaving towards them as if that wrong never happened. You don't let it create a wedge between you because, again, the Spirit of God desires that the people of God would be unified and not divided. And, of course, this is a difficult teaching, right? I mean, think about that person right now that you are struggling to forgive. And I'm telling you that actually the way of Jesus is that you would forgive. This is a difficult teaching, but it's a straightforward process. It's not complicated, 
although it is hard. And I would say, in fact, to act in love towards someone who sinned against you, to act in love towards someone who has sinned against you and really forgive them and no longer hold their fault against them, you know what I'm going to tell you it is? It is impossible. This is a theme that I think we have talked about at Maricopa Springs in the recent past. The way of Jesus is impossible for you, my friends. But what is impossible with man, Jesus teaches, is possible with God. So when a Christian forgives someone of their sin, they really actually go on to live in relationship with that person as if that sin was never done to them. And this is not their power at work. It is the power of divine grace functioning in the heart of the Christian. Because that's how God acts towards us. Do you see? So Jesus has been talking about sin in Matthew 18, and now we're going to get to the parable about forgiveness. Sorry for my super long introduction. Pick up with me in verse 21, Matthew 18. I love Peter. Peter comes up to Jesus, verse 21, and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. We're going to get to that in a second. So verse 21, uh, Peter asked the question that probably many of us want to ask, right? Jesus is teaching about sin in the church, and if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault, and you work it out. Well, then obviously the question that comes to mind is, okay, Jesus, I get it. I'm supposed to forgive my brother when he sins against me, but Jesus, how many times, how many times should I forgive my brother? I mean, I, Jesus, I forgive people seven times. I think that's pretty generous. Wouldn't you agree, Jesus? And also, Jesus, wouldn't you say that there is a point where after which I should be released from any obligation to forgive somebody for the sins that they have done against me? Like, where's the limit, Jesus, on forgiveness that we need to show people? Now, I would say that the way in which Peter poses this question reveals that he thinks of himself as a very generous guy, right? I mean, in our culture, we have a saying about this kind of thing, don't we? Three strikes and you're out. That's not just a baseball, you know, metaphor about how you play the sports ball. This is how we tend to apply things to our relationships with one another, with how people behave towards us. I would actually say that most people think that if you're going to forgive somebody three times, you're on the generous side of the equation. And Peter goes way beyond that. He's like, man, most people probably go with like three, Jesus. I'm like doubling that plus one. I'm at seven. And I'm, I'm fairly confident that if you were to go to one of your good friends and you were to explain to them that someone has continued to wrong you and sinned against you and you were to tell them, yeah, I've actually been through this process of forgiveness like seven times, 
um, I can almost guarantee you that your good friend is going to advise you by telling you this person is toxic. You need to get out of that relationship. For your own mental health, you need to sever this. There's like a best-selling book about this called Boundaries. This is an abusive person, and you should not have to continue to put up with them. Or maybe they would say to you, you know, for your sake, so that bitterness doesn't grow, you should forgive this person, but you don't have any obligation to continue in the relationship with them, okay? I would be willing to bet just about everybody in this room has had a conversation similar to that with somebody advising them about a difficult relationship that they are in. Now, here's a spoiler alert for where this parable of Jesus is headed. Don't misunderstand. The parable is not about some right that you have to continue sinning against somebody else. That's not the point. As if you could hear this message today and go and be like, well, this person has to forgive me, so I'll just continue to wrong them. No, that's not the point. But the parable is about your obligation to forgive people, I would say, limitlessly. Limitlessly. In fact, this parable teaches us that the forgiveness that you offer to someone else and the relationship that you have with them as a brother or sister in Christ is not actually dependent upon them at all. It's not based on their actions at all. The parable that Jesus is about to tell us is primarily about what? Our relationship to him. That's what we're going to find out, okay? So don't miss this point. It is true that to forgive someone seven times is generous. And I would add, it's also true that the person who requires forgiveness seven times, that's a dangerous person. That's a pretty dysfunctional person. But you know what this parable is actually trying to tell us? You are that person. You are that person. The whole point of this parable is to reframe how we think about forgiveness. Not that we would think about ourselves who have forgiven others much, like Peter who says, I'm so generous, I forgive seven times. Jesus wants us to see that we should think about ourselves as people who have been forgiven much. And so this parable is about you. It is about your debt of forgiveness. So let's answer the question, how many times should we as Christians forgive someone who wrongs us? I would say always at least one more time. Always at least one more time. See, Jesus is not saying that 77 times is the limit. That would be absurd. Who could even count that high? Are you seriously going to keep a, t a tally? Like maybe I should start an app, the Sin Tracker app, right? So I can put your name in there and I can keep a track of how many times you wrong me. You're going to do 77 times and then quit at 78? Really? Don't you see how absurd that is? The point is that 77 times of forgiving somebody if you were actually to try and keep track, wouldn't you lose count at some point along the way? 
and just stop keeping track. And actually, if you think of yourself as a forgiving person, but you've counted 77 times, or even seven times, do you know what you are not? A forgiving person. Because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us love keeps no record of wrongs. That's how God loves you. He keeps no record of your wrongs. And so the parable Jesus is going to tell, it's going to reframe the question. If you have to ask, hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody who sins against me? Then I would say to you, you have not rightly understood Christianity at all. You've kind of missed the point. You've not thought enough about the grace that you have been given as a sinner. You've not reflected deeply enough on your own awful shortcoming before a holy, holy, holy God. And so the question is not, how, how can I forgive this person again? How can I find the resources that I need to forgive this person again? The real question is, before God, God, how can you forgive me again for this sin? Read with me verses 23 through 27. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So here's the lesson that Jesus gives on forgiveness. And the parable begins with this king who has a servant. And this is a servant who has drawn liberally on the accounts of his master. Right? He's been given like the bank card and he's just gone and made the most out of it. He has no qualms about spending money that does not belong to him. He's quite happy to take what belongs to others and use it for his own benefit. As verse 28 is going to reveal, this is a man who is anything but generous, but he's got no problem spending somebody else's money. And we learn in verse 24 that when he's brought before his master, what does he owe his master? 10,000 talents. So hopefully your Bible footnotes that for you to give you some perspective there. This is an amount that this man cannot possibly repay. Uh, it's 20 years wages for a laborer. So let's do the math and translate it into present dollars. Average salary in America right now is $31,000 per year. So you can multiply that by 20 and then multiply it again by 10,000. And this man owes his master a debt of $6,200,000,000 in today's equivalent. It is an absurd amount of money, right? Like almost nobody can repay this debt. In fact, there are 53 nations on planet Earth that don't have a GDP sufficient to repay this debt. That's how much money it is. This man is hopelessly indebted to the king. And, and the size of his debt communicates that he's kind of an ugly guy, doesn't it? 
He's greedy. He's self-centered. How in the world do you even spend $6,200,000,000 that doesn't belong to you? It's shocking. It's almost grotesque. It says a lot about his character, right? He's happy to take. So because of his debt, the king declares, well, the life of this man, it's forfeit. His wife, his children, everything he owns, it should be sold and this man should be thrown into jail and this is a just and righteous judgment. Actually, it's more than fair, I think. You know, as a servant, his life already didn't belong to him. It belonged to the king already. And then he went out and he drew on the king's accounts and he found himself terribly in debt with no recourse to save himself. And so now what little that does belong to him should in fact be forfeit and that money should be given to the master for restitution. And the servant obviously despairs at this and he cries out for mercy. What else could he do? And amazingly, the king actually grants him mercy. He relents of his judgment. He forgives the servant of the debt. Can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine just writing off a $6 billion, $200 million debt as if it was no big deal? Who would do that? You, at least, or I, at least, would be like, yeah, okay, man, but leave him in his undies, and I'd like his shirt and his shoes and his pants. We'll sell those. At least maybe I can get a cup of coffee out of this bad deal, right? So here we have a picture of a king whose generosity is unfathomable. His willingness to forgive is beyond measure. His grace really knows no bounds, He does not count the $6 billion debt that this man owes him against the man. He simply lets it go. That is incredibly generous forgiveness, isn't it? Now, we might think that such an impressive display of grace or mercy would leave this guy a changed man, right? You know, like Mr. Scrooge in A Christmas Carol We're kind of at the end after uh, getting a second chance at life. He becomes a very generous and happy, joyful guy. In this parable, we see a man who has just been set free from a crushing debt that would give you or I constant nightmares and ongoing anguish and anxiety, right? Like ulcer style every day. And he is now suddenly free. And you might expect that his freedom would make him carefree, that it would make him kind. But let's see what he does with this freedom. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So now we see how this man uses the mercy that has been given to him. 
And we see that it's not touched his heart in the slightest. He goes out, he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him some money, and he immediately begins to mistreat that servant over the debt that he is owed. And he takes him cruelly by the throat and he demands from this man repayment. And again, we see that this servant has not rightly understood all of the mercy that has been done to him. Amazingly, the kindness of the king has not touched this man's heart to make him merciful and generous. How can this be? Isn't it right for us to read this and be shocked? And be left in just amazement and wonder what in the world is wrong with this man. He clearly does not comprehend all the grace he has received. So he seeks to recover his hundred denarii. Let's translate that into today's dollars. It's about $12,000. That's not a small debt, actually. Like, this is not for pennies. If someone owed you $12,000, that would be meaningful amount of money, Right? But when compared to what this servant has just received from God, $12,000 really is essentially nothing, isn't it? Isn't it incomparable? What would you rather have, be forgiven a $6 billion debt or hold against somebody a $12,000 debt? And so... The wicked servant doesn't think about the mercy he's received. He thinks only about the debt that's owed him. And when this other servant pleads for mercy, his cry is not met with kindness. Instead, this first servant refuses to be merciful, and he has his debtor thrown in prison. And again, we see what kind of man this first servant really is, don't we? He is concerned only with himself. He thinks only of what's owed to him. He's unkind. He's ungenerous. And worst of all, he's really hard-hearted because his response to the plea for mercy is to throw this man in prison. And he doesn't consider the goodness that's been done to him. He thinks only of the wrong. And so his ugly heart is untouched by the mercy he's received. So let's see how it plays out. 31 to 35. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the news of the cruelty of the first servant gets back to the king and he is obviously greatly displeased by how These events have unfolded. The king goes so far as to call this first servant wicked. That is to say that his actions are evil, they are immoral, they are unholy. The king doesn't call the man ignorant, as if he's just failed to understand his situation. He doesn't merely call him unkind, although that would be an appropriate word to describe his actions. The word wicked clearly places upon this man 
the blame that he deserves for being unkind. He has refused to let the mercy he received shape him, transform him, and influence the way that he sees himself and the way that he sees others. He's really a nasty man, isn't he? Willing to take from the king the mercy that he wants without being willing to extend that mercy to others. And I think verse 33 is the crux that comes right before the lesson in verse 35. Verse 33 leaves us with this question. How can you be a person who has received forgiveness from God and not be a person who extends forgiveness to others? How can you be a person who has truly understood the grace that you have received and not then be a person who gives grace to others? How is it possible that a man who has been given such generosity in the midst of his trouble is not utterly changed and transformed by this act of mercy? And I want you to understand, this is the real impossibility, my friends. We talked about at the beginning, you know, man, Grady, you're going to talk about forgiveness, but I think what you're going to say is going to be rough. It's probably impossible. No, this is the impossibility, my friends. Not that it is impossible for Christians to forgive. What is impossible is for a Christian to not forgive. Don't you see? It is impossible for us as Christians to have received from God the forgiveness that he has offered us in the person of Jesus Christ and not then be the kind of people who generously forgive those who sin against us. Because we as Christians understand how great our debt is to God. Whatever evil someone might do to us, and there is great evil that could be done to us. But we're guilty of even greater evil against God. We are great debtors to God for our sin, and we have no right, therefore, to receive mercy from him and not be people who are made merciful. And this is why Jesus ends the lesson with verse 35. Like, people want to really like the teachings of Jesus, but then he goes and wrecks it all by saying stuff like this. Jesus essentially says that God will punish those who have been, who have been offered forgiveness and yet are not forgiving people. And this is why Colossians 3.13 gives us the command, as the Lord has forgiven you, forgive and this is not a works righteousness principle. Let me throw in a theological word for you. It is ontological, okay? Which is to say that Christians, by the very nature of our being as people who are forgiven, because our nature is forgiveness through Christ, then it is in our nature like Christ to be forgiving, I say it again, it's not impossible for a Christian to forgive. It is impossible for a Christian not to forgive. Those who have really had their hearts touched and changed by the forgiveness they've received, they're going to be people 
who forgive freely, generously, liberally. And I want to say here again, guys, don't, don't think I'm saying that the debt of that second servant was trivial. It was not. It was not anything to laugh at. I'm not suggesting that you should forgive somebody because, hey, when you think about it in the big picture, you know, what they did against you is really not that big a deal. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that because we have been forgiven an even greater debt, then we are free to be the kind of people who can forgive those who have wronged us. The debt we owe to God is greater than any debt owed to us. And since we've been forgiven, then we should also forgive. You understand, don't you, that you, through your own actions, have placed yourself in a really terrible predicament before God. You've got yourself into such an awful mess that the only solution for your problem as a sinner before a holy God, is for this God to put himself on the cross and shed his blood for you because your sins were vile and offensive in the sight of God. And God has not only forgiven you for the sin that you committed against him, you know what he has most forgiven you for? The blood of Christ that was shed for you. As Jesus died on the cross, he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus made a priceless sacrifice for you in his blood that you could never, ever repay. And yet God declares to you, your debt is canceled. And so who do we think we are then as Christians, as slaves of Christ, saved by his blood, to withhold forgiveness from another? And so the point of the parable is this, Peter. Let's make it clear for you. Peter, if you withhold forgiveness from your brother, no matter how big or how small, then you're going to be like this servant, guilty before the king who doesn't understand the grace that he's received. Now, I, I want to mention one other thing, and I'm, I'm sorry, I have this tendency to just be long-winded, but I, I actually think this is important. Uh, because we have this desire to wiggle out from commands like this, you know, Jesus teaches these things, and we're like, yeah, okay, but let's talk about all the exceptions. Um, you might be tempted, based on verses 21 and 35, to think that Jesus is only talking about your fellow Christian because he uses this word brother, right? Peter says, how many times should my brother sin against me and I forget of him? And Jesus mentions that word brother again at the end. See, Jesus is only talking about forgiving fellow Christians. But you do understand now that to make that claim really misses the point, doesn't it? So let me say this again. The point of this parable is not about your relationship to the person who has sinned against you. The point is all about your relationship to the God who has forgiven you. You don't forgive because this abusive person over here deserves it or because they might change and get better and not do it anymore. 
We forgive as Christians because we are forgiven, period. The power to forgive does not come from us. It's not because of them. It flows from God himself who forgives us and then makes us forgiving people. So here's the gospel message one more time. You should forgive other people, but you don't. And you won't. You can't. They don't deserve it, right? They're not worthy of your forgiveness. But the gospel is, you have been forgiven. That's the good news. And now because of his power at work in you, you can forgive. You will forgive. And if you cannot, or you will not, then we must assume it's because, like the wicked servant, you've not actually received this grace. It's not made its way down into your heart. Because when you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, it totally transforms you. You stand in awe of his mercy and his love. You're blown away by his generosity. You are made rich in love and kindness because you are rich in love and kindness. You become like him in love and forgiveness and grace. 